Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Last year, wildfires scorched thousands of acres across the state, with two of the largest in state history damaging some favorite recreation areas in northern Colorado. Being able to help clean it up so it's usable for other people is really rewarding. On today's show, we get a glimpse at what recovery efforts look like. And we learn about the fascinating legacy of a Denver businessman whose life was shaped by the Underground Railroad. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Federal fire managers are warning that the country's firefighting resources are near full deployment. That's not a declaration we often hear this early in the summer. But with much of the West baking in drought and record high temperatures, fire officials in Colorado are trying to prevent a repeat of last year's record-breaking season. Recent hot and windy conditions across northwest Colorado have created optimal conditions for wildfires. Several have broken out in the last week, including the Muddy Slide Fire in Route County, south of Steamboat Springs, the West Fire in northwest Moffat County, and the Sylvan Fire burning near Eagle. The cause of that fire is not yet known, although officials believe it was started by lightning. For more on the Sylvan Fire, we're joined by David Boyd, Public Affairs Officer for the White River National Forest. David, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Tell us first a little bit about the area that the Sylvan Fire is burning in. Is this a a popular spot for people to recreate? The Sylvan Fire is burning about uh, 16 miles south of Eagle, Colorado, so south of I-70. It started near Sylvan Lake State Park, which a lot of people are familiar with. That's a very popular State Park and a very pretty area in lots of um, beautiful timber, and that's what uh, we're we're challenged with uh, with this fire. Is this difficult terrain for firefighters to work in? There's some, definitely some rugged terrain, and, and probably the biggest challenge is just it's a lot of uh, very thick timber forests without a lot of um, breaks within that uh, within that forest. So we have a lot of what firefighters would refer to as continuous fuels. So there's limited areas where we can safely in, engage and, uh, you know, hold, try to hold the fire. And I think after last year's historic wildfire season, a lot of us are, are feeling very wary about the dangers of this year. Can you talk about what the Forest Service in general and forest officials have been doing to prepare for this year's season? You know, we do what we can in terms of um, reducing fuels, especially in areas near communities. Uh, but it's, it's uh, you know, a massive scale that we need to do that. You know, we have our, our crews in place and our, and our resources engaged now. But we're really, you know, this is early for uh, the amount of fires that we're seeing. And, you know, we hope that maybe we'll get some summer rains coming, but the outlook right now is not very good for that. We are heading into the weekend. What precautions do you want people who may be getting outdoors to be thinking about? Certainly all of the White River National Forest and and the BLM in this area, the Bureau of Land Management land, and Eagle County, Picking County, Summit County, we're all, uh, by Friday, we'll be in what are called Stage 2 fire restrictions. So that's really restrictive. Um, Basically, you can use your your camp stove with petroleum, but otherwise uh, no campfires, smoking only in a vehicle or a building, that kind of thing. So um, we don't go into Stage 2 restrictions every year. Most years for a little bit will be in what are called stage one, and that's you can still have campfires if you're at a campground. But 
starting Friday, no no campfires at all. And then we're really just trying to get the word out, too, about it, it is so dry that just things like parking in dry grass or um, if, if you're pulling a trailer and the chains are dragging, that often causes sparks, which do ignite uh, wildfires. So just really wanting to make sure people understand how dry it is and how careful they need to be. David Boyd is a public affairs officer with the U.S. Forest Service. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Erin. Last year, Colorado saw its three largest wildfires on record. The Pine Gulch Fire started off the season near Grand Junction. That quickly grew to be the largest in the state's history, burning 139,000 acres. But not long after, the Cameron Peak and the East Troublesome Fires in northern Colorado both surpassed that size. While the season was fast moving, the recovery in the months since has proven to be a much slower process. KUNC reporters Matt Bloom and Ashley Picconi have been out visiting some of the worst hit sites, and they are with us now to explain a little bit more. Hey, you two. Hey, Erin. Hi. Ashley, I want to turn to you first. Uh, You were up near Cameron Pass, close to where the Cameron Peak fire started. Can you give us a brief reminder about this fire and the damage it caused? The Cameron Peak fire was spotted on August 13th last year. The cause of the fire is still under investigation, but it's believed to be from human activity. And hot temperatures, strong winds, low humidity, and beetle kill all made it worse. Mm -hmm. The fire ended up being the largest in Colorado history. It burned over 200,000 acres and damaged or destroyed almost 500 buildings. It wasn't fully contained until December 2nd, 112 days after it started. Where did you visit and what did you do there? I was up in Comanche Peak Wilderness with the Pooter Wilderness Volunteers. They're one of many groups that work to build and restore trails in the area. They're trying to get some trails in the burn back open to the public. We hiked along an area where they are doing the most work. That's where I met the head of the Restoration Committee, Mike Corbin, who discussed the damage. You see this part of the forest got a light ground burn. Uh, I don't see any trees that died, a few little ones, but some of the stuff on the ground burned. That's good because the next time a fire comes through, there won't be as much fuel for it. There were spots along the trail that looked completely normal, but then we'd turn a corner and everything changed. Here we transition from a very light burn to what I would call fairly severe. You get worse, but pretty much all the trees are dead. You don't have any vegetation coming up yet. And it, and it can transition very quickly. Like here, you know, to the right, green, to the left, black. We made it about three miles in from the trailhead. The group spent hours sawing by hand and moving downed trees that were blocking the trail. Okay, that sounds like uh, quite a workout. I tried it myself and it was hard work, but for 69-year-old Corbin, this was just another day of many. We'll do over 2,000 trees a year on a normal year. And this year we've done maybe 600 already. We may get 4,000 this year. I'm curious, who are these people who volunteer their time to go out and saw down these trees by hand? A lot of them are retirees. Uh, Some of the volunteers come from companies and church groups. That day, most were from Nutrien, a Loveland-based fertilizer company, and that included Ethan Gerard. Right before the fire started, I came on a three-day camping trip up here, 
and it looks completely different now um, with all the trees burned and fallen over. It's uh, really rewarding because this is a space that uh, I've used before and um, you know being able to help clean it up so it's usable for other people is really rewarding. By mid-afternoon, our group had cleared more than 50 trees. Everyone was just covered in sweat and ash, and even under my boots, my feet were coated with soot. Uh, Pooter Wilderness volunteers have already opened a handful of trails, and they hope to get many more this summer. But Corbin said the ecosystem still has a long way to go to make a full recovery. Well, that leads to my next question, which, uh, Matt, I will put to you. You visited sections of Rocky Mountain National Park that were damaged by the East Troublesome Fire. And just a reminder to listeners, that became the second largest in the state's history. What progress has the ecosystem made since that fire was contained? The East Troublesome, along with a little bit of the Cameron Peak Fire, burned about 10 percent of the park's forested area. And the good news is we're already seeing vegetation grow back in a lot of those spots. I hiked out to the burn scar on the west side of of Rocky with some park staff to get a better look. Well, we'll just right here where it looks more brown and gray. Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of roots in there. That's Corin Nydick. She's Rocky's chief of resource stewardship. She's also an environmental scientist. And what you hear us doing there is digging into some dark gray and black soil. There are little bits of roots, but they're not really connected. They're burned up. So even here, we'll have different, like a patchwork of soil burn severity. And I know we don't see that much regeneration yet, but there, there is some. All around us, you can see some grass, some ferns, even wild strawberries, wildflowers poking back up through the burned soil. And Nydick says as far as the soil goes, it's actually in pretty good shape for regrowth. Uh, That's because strong winds pushed the East Troublesome fire through this area so quickly, uh, there just wasn't time for the soil to cook, as she puts it. What's interesting on top of that is that because the climate in this area is changing, the forest could look much different when it eventually grows back. The seedlings that are able to to start um, coming up from seed, they're going to experience a different climate. And will, you know, it will depend. Are we going to get another droughty summer? What's going to happen in the next five, ten years um, with climate change on top of natural variability? That's going to, I think, affect how well the current vegetation does here, uh, whether it's able to come back as a lodgepole pine forest or if we're having other species move in. It's still too early to know the answer to some of those questions. Officials in the park remain concerned about the potential for landslides and flooding in burned areas like this one, too. So they've also installed some new sensors and early detection systems to monitor the watershed. Well, I know the park still hasn't reopened a lot of trails uh, or roads and some of the buildings, too, that were damaged. Can you tell us more about the status of those? About 15 percent of the park's trail system remains closed right now, and that's because they're just way too dangerous to hike on. There are exposed nails and chunks of rocks that literally exploded when when these fires moved through the park. So they have to clear all of that stuff out. 
The fires also burned down 17 bridges throughout the park, so they're having to rebuild those in a warehouse, then fly the bridges into the park via helicopter, then after that, hike out themselves and finish installing them in person. Trail system manager Doug Parker says that they're working as fast as they can. Our goal has been all along, clear the trees, clear the debris, put in the bridges, stabilize the trails, and then assess them for both protection of our trails and the resources around the trails and make sure everything's ready for reopening. Another big recovery priority is redesigning and rebuilding employee housing on the park's west side. We visited the Green Mountain housing area that lost seven cabins and a lodge for workers. It's now just rows of burned out chimneys. One of the biggest losses was this building called the Onahu Lodge. Parker says that this was a really special place for employees because it had amazing views, living rooms for staff to gather in, and people are still grappling with the fact that it's just totally gone. When it burned down, I had dozens of former trail crew people reach out, and the first thing they asked is, did Anahu Lodge survive? <laughs> and unfortunately, we had to say no, because I think that was something that like they held most dearest, was this housing and opportunity to live here and like the awesome views. and. Um, yeah, it's a special place to the trail crew. The park is now short-staffed because many workers couldn't find affordable housing close enough to the park. Some of them had to find rentals all the way in Winter Park, which is an hour commute to the west side of Rocky. Plans to rebuild that housing are coming together, but it could take years, and as you can imagine, it's really expensive. Man, such a long-term project here. I know Rocky and Cameron Pass and many other places that were affected by last year's wildfires, these are very special to a lot of people who live in northern Colorado. At the same time, we know the climate is warming. It's dry. The threat of wildfires not going away anytime soon. Uh, So a question for both of you. Are these recovery efforts underway designed to help protect against future fires? Uh, And if they are, how? Well, one thing that I learned is that firefighters actually use these trails as fire breaks. They're good places to defend and try to stop the front. So preserving and restoring trails is super valuable because it gives firefighters access and a starting off point if there's a fire in that area in the future. With the warming climate, it's pretty much inevitable that we're going to see more seasons like last year. So any measures like this that we can take to prepare are well worth the work. Yeah, the staff of Rocky mentioned some of those things too. Uh, maintaining roads and thinning out areas of overgrown forest are super high priorities as well. One of the other places we stopped on our tour was Upper Beaver Meadows. There's kind of a cool story here. This was one of the spots where firefighters were able to actually hold back part of the East Troublesome Fire and keep it from burning farther east into Estes Park. Mm. They actually used an area of the forest that firefighters had thinned out back in 2009 as sort of a catcher's mitt while they attacked the fire from other angles. It's kind of amazing how they're able to use this. Mike Llewelling, the fire management officer for Rocky, says that they now have projects underway to thin thousands more acres of forest on the park's east side. What we're seeing today with the extreme fire behavior, whole towns burning, we need to think bigger and more extreme. And the number one goal is managing or reducing the risk to people. And that means employees and the public. He says while some forest treatment work has been going on for years now, 
last year's wildfire season just made it feel that much more urgent. I want to thank both of you for going out, for gathering all of this great information, and thanks for sharing it with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Erin. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Earlier this month, Congress passed a bill to officially recognize Juneteenth as a federal holiday. It marks the anniversary of when many of the last enslaved people finally learned of their freedom in 1865. Before emancipation, of course, many enslaved people took another path to freedom, a secret network of routes and safe houses called the Underground Railroad. While Colorado was still just a territory back in 1865, the National Park Service does recognize one location in the state as a place associated with the Underground Railroad. That's the Barney L. Ford Building in Denver. While this building, which still stands on Blake Street today, was never a stop on that network, its namesake and former proprietor, Barney L. Ford, played an instrumental role in the Underground Railroad, having used it to escape to freedom and then help others to do the same. And that's only the first half of his story. Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber takes it from here. Throughout his life, Barney Ford was a barber, restaurateur, hotel manager, civil rights pioneer, and all-around entrepreneur. In the 1870s, he was known as the Black Baron of Colorado, being the 14th wealthiest man in the territory. But back in 1822, he was born into slavery in Stafford, Virginia. I might uh, point out that he was the offspring of a slave woman and her slave owner. Steve Shepard is a former board member and volunteer at the Black American West Museum in Denver, who has researched and reenacted Barney Ford. The breakthrough in Barney's learning came after the mistress of that plantation sold Barney to a very, very learned person and would constantly read Shakespeare and, and other upscale documents. And Barney would listen and learn the diction, and he also learned to read. By the time Barney was about 18, he was leased out to a showboat. There, he met someone who would change the course of his life. While he was on that ship, he befriended one of the actors, and that actor was part of the abolitionist movement. He promised Barney that he would help him to escape slavery. So one day, the actor helped Barney to dress up as a slightly built white woman and helped him to escape that boat. He followed the North Star as most escaped slaves did and made his way to Chicago. And while he was in Chicago, Barney helped other former slaves escape to freedom. In fact, he would transport slaves from Chicago to the Canadian border for their freedom. Barney did have to be very careful as he did this because, once again, he was an escaped fugitive slave. At this time, Barney was also working at a barbershop where he heard talk of the Western gold rush. And he decided that he and his new wife, Julia, should be a part of it. So, after a brief stint running a hotel and restaurant in Nicaragua that the U.S. later bombed during tensions over land ownership, he finally made his way to Colorado by mule train. He had no idea what a mule skinner was, but he booked himself on one of the mule trains and eventually learned that trade and made his way to Colorado. Barney came to Colorado for gold, but after he was swindled out of a claim to a gold mine by an attorney, he moved to Denver and started a restaurant. 
until a massive fire in 1863 burned it down. And in order to rebuild, he would need a loan. He decided that he would apply to a Mr. Kuntz at the future Colorado State Bank for $1,000. Mr. Kuntz told him that since he was an honest man, that he had developed a strong reputation as a businessman in Denver, that he would loan him $9,000. Barney was pretty apprehensive about taking that $9,000 since he had been swindled and chased off his gold mines and so on. He would go ahead and take that, but he needed to pay it back just as soon as he could. Well, he paid it back in record time in nine months. And that's how I developed such a strong reputation as a businessman in the Denver area. The restaurant was incredibly successful, and Barney made a ton of money. But he was frustrated that Colorado lawmakers still refused to grant African Americans the right to vote. So he and Julia went back to Chicago to get their thoughts together. While they were in Chicago, a group of businessmen and Black politicians and activists decided that they would ask Barney to go to Washington, D.C. to convince the uh, national legislature to not grant Colorado statehood until it did grant the Black vote. Well, that was a successful move because Colorado, even though they were applying for statehood in 1865, it was not granted because of that reason. Colorado didn't become a state until 1876, and by then, the 15th Amendment, which granted African Americans the right to vote, had already been ratified. And he was very, very pleased with that. In fact, he decided to come back to Colorado because he knew that he could be very effective in the political area. Barney eventually ran for state legislature, but lost to a white Southerner, who argued that Barney shouldn't be elected not because he was Black, but because he was kind of a rich show-off. That really depressed Barney for some time. But Barney did, did stay active in politics and eventually was appointed to the Colorado Grand Jury as well as the Board of Bank Examiners. At that time, practically the only African-American who was involved in that level of politics. His racial identity didn't matter because he was providing income to those other folks who were investing in his operations. So at that time, Barney had an income which was 14th highest in the uh, Colorado area. So that's how he developed that name, the Black Baron or Mr. Barney Ford. Barney Ford was an entrepreneur through and through. When his hotel in Nicaragua was bombed, he started a barbershop and restaurant in Denver. When that burned down, he rebuilt it. And later, two premier hotels in Denver and Cheyenne. And somehow also found the time to build a school for the formerly enslaved. And when his hotels went under in the economic collapse of the 1870s, he started a restaurant in Breckenridge, which he operated until shortly before his death in 1892. No matter how much he earned and how much of a high-profile person he was, he still wanted to reach out and to help his fellow man. To this day, you can visit the building in Denver where Barney once operated his businesses. Although the building itself was not a stop on the Underground Railroad, Steve says that it makes sense to recognize the building as part of Underground Railroad history. The impact of the Underground Railroad on Barney Ford's life is the reason 
that that building at 1514 Blake Street ha has been noted as being related because it meant so much to Barney Ford. Not only did it help him to escape slavery, but he spent so much of his time and his life helping to further the Black population through the Underground Railroad. The story of Barney Ford is just one of the amazing journeys of the formerly enslaved. And with Juneteenth now recognized as a national holiday, Steve is hopeful that more stories like Barney's will come to light. Just this past two weeks, I was able to travel to Tulsa, Oklahoma for the commemoration of the Tulsa massacre. And one of the outstanding points of that was that I have friends who are in their 70s who grew up 30 miles away from Tulsa and had never heard of that. Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And those who do not remember their past are condemned to repeat their mistakes. That's the reason that we study history and that we study lives like Barney Ford. That was Colorado Edition's Alana Shriver speaking with Barney Ford reenactor Steve Shepard, who is also a former board member and volunteer at the Black American West Museum in Denver. That's our show for today. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back with more great stories for you next week on Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.